today's uh, scripture reading comes from Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, in the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, everyone. It's great to see all of you. Thanks, Vince, for reading God's Word to us. Let's pray before we jump into God's Word. Oh, Father, we need your help. We, we sense our need. And so what we know not, we ask that you would give us. And what we have not, would you please give us. And we ask that what we are not, you would make us. Transform us, Lord through the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What would you say is the best way to know what someone believes? For instance, let's say you're getting to know someone better. You want to know what they really believe, what they believe is important, what they believe is valuable or true. How could you find out? You might say, well, you can just ask them, and that's simple enough, and I think that's a fine answer. But I want to suggest another way to tell what someone believes. Perhaps even a better way to tell what someone believes is to observe how they live. For instance, I could tell you that I believe that all people have dignity in the eyes of God. And I believe that all people have equal worth in God's sight. But if you then see me mistreat people, use people, discriminate against some you'd likely start to question really whether I really believe any of that, wouldn't you? You might begin to think that I really believe something else altogether and simply say that I believe in the value and worth of every person. At the very least, you'd say that my stated belief has failed to impact the way I live. And that's a problem, isn't it? Because we all know that truly held beliefs are meant to, they should, in fact, shape one's life. And if they don't, then we have reason to question whether they are truly held beliefs. As many of you know, this church spent the first four months of the year studying the Apostles' Creed. In case you weren't here for that, we saw that the Apostles' Creed is an ancient summary of the Christian faith. It's an ancient summary of uh, the teachings of the Bible and the core beliefs of Christianity we also saw, as we studied the Apostles' Creed, that the essence of that creed's message is the message of the gospel. And by gospel, I mean God's plan. The very, very good news of God's plan to redeem this broken and sin-cursed world. And to rescue everyone who believes in his son who died and rose again and will one day return to reign and rule over a renewed creation where justice reigns. We've recited that Apostles' Creed together as a church multiple times, and each time we read it together, we're declaring, I believe the message of the Bible. I believe 
the gospel. But the gospel is not just a set of truths and ideas that we hold in our minds. It's, no, the gospel is, is meant to impact our minds and our lives and to impact the world through us. Belief in the gospel is meant to shape the way we live. And that, New Hope Fellowship, is the, the, a key theme of this book of the Bible that we're going to begin studying today. The letter to Titus. A letter to Titus. One of the main messages of this letter is that belief in the truth of the gospel leads to a certain kind of living. Belief in the gospel lives to a, a way of living that contrasts itself in many ways from what our culture might call the good life. But the author of this letter to Titus, he knows that there's often a, a, a discrepancy, there's often a gap between what we believe or what we say we believe, on the one hand, and how we live. And so this letter is here to call us to a realignment. This letter calls us to reconsider our lives carefully in order to realign them with the truth that we claim to believe. And, and we really need this, New Hope. We, we need this with, with frequency because we are all prone to drift from what we know is true. For any number of reasons, we can find ourselves swerving and heading away in the direction that, that, that is not in accord with where the gospel points us. And the drift can be so subtle at times that we don't realize we've lost our way. We don't realize that we're no longer aligned with the gospel until things get really bad. If you're an automobile, automobile owner, have you ever gotten your wheels realigned? If you have, you, you probably got your wheels realigned because either you or, or maybe your mechanic noticed that, that when driving your car, the, the steering wheel could be pointing straight up in the right place, in the right direction, but your car is actually drifting left or it's drifting right. And so you learn to adjust for that. <laughs> maybe you hold your, your, your steering wheel this way just to go straight. But eventually, you really should get that thing realigned. The day-to-day -day rigors of driving, they, especially careless driving, right, over potholes and, and speed bumps and, and over curbs, it all takes a toll on your automobile, and gradually it throws the vehicle out of alignment, and so it is with us. The temptations and the distractions that you face, the competing truth claims that you encounter, while you're not paying attention, they can lead you to begin to live in ways that do not correspond with where God's word directs you. The, the steering wheel that is the gospel is pointing you in one direction, in the right direction, but you keep drifting towards what is unhealthy, towards what is unsafe, towards what is ungodly, into ways of life that diverge from what God calls the good life, a life lived well. So Titus is here to realign us. And let me reiterate, we all need this. We all need God's word to do this work for us. We need to keep coming back to the scriptures with, with humility 
And, and, and we need to allow God's word to, to confront us and disrupt us at times. Because we may think we're heading in the right direction. But the Bible often, in a wonderfully, sometimes painful, but very helpful way, can cause us to question the way that we've been doing things. To, to, to help us question, what is it that I've been chasing how is it that I've been viewing myself? How is it that I'm looking at other people? It's uncomfortable, but it's good. Because this word is true. It's also alive and it's active. It has power. And if we say we believe it, then we must allow it to impact the direction of our lives. If you, if you don't believe the message of the Bible... Or if you're still wondering whether the Bible is true and whether its message deserves to be believed, um, first of all, thank you for willingly listening to me talk about the Bible. But I want to I want to encourage you to approach the next few weeks here in these gatherings with an open mind, with a humble heart, and see if what this letter of Titus calls us to is in fact good. Judge for yourself. Is what Paul calls us to, this author, what he calls us to, is it in fact good? Because he says it is. Is this in fact a good life that he's directing us towards? Consider whether the kind of life that this book directs you towards is in fact a life lived well. And consider more foundationally whether the news of the gospel is, in fact, good news. Today, I'm just going to introduce this letter to Titus by looking at the first four verses. And then we're, we're, what we're going to do is we're basically going to look at the who, the what, and the why of this letter. Who wrote it and to, and to whom was it written? What is it about? And why was it written? Who, what, and why? So first of all, the who. The author of this letter is a Jewish man named Paul. He lived in the first century. Off the bat, in this letter, he identifies himself in verse 1 as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. What this means, this is important. This means that this man saw himself as a representative and a messenger of someone else, namely Jesus. So in Paul's day, a servant or a slave, the word could be translated either way, a servant didn't act on his own authority, but on the authority of his or her master. An apostle, on the other hand, was not sent to deliver his or her own message, but a message from the one who sent them. And that's how Paul sees his calling. That's how he understands his vocation. He's been commanded to preach. He's been commanded to deliver the truth that was entrusted to him by God, the God whom he calls in verse 2, or says in verse 2, never lies. He says, this message that I've been entrusted to deliver to you and to everyone else is truth. And one of the reasons I know it's truth is because the God who gave it to me never lies. And by the way, that is the kind of spirit that really should mark preaching wherever it happens, gospel preaching wherever it happens, um, no matter who the preacher is, right, no matter who's standing here or in some other church building. I, I cannot speak from my own authority from up here. 
nor, nor can I authoritatively uh, offer my own opinions, my own ideas. To do that would be to use this space illegitimately. All I can really legitimately do from here is tell you what God tells me. That's my role. And then try to explain what it means when God tells you what he tells you. I even have to be super careful when I try to apply what God tells you and say, if this is what God says, then here's how you should apply this in your life. I need to do that, but I need to do that very carefully because I don't want to ever go beyond what God has said to lay a burden on you or a law or some rules on you that don't come from God but actually come from me. And I've sought to be careful about this, and, and as have our elders, all of our other elders, and our staff members who have gotten up here to preach. We've all tried to be careful about that, not because, uh, not because we're all modest guys, but because we know what the job of a delivery boy is, and that is what we are. In Frank's terms, we are delivery boys. And we, can, we certainly try to be engaging and, and persuasive and winsome, and you can judge whether we succeed or not. But at the end of the day, all the authority, all the power lies in the fact that God's true words are being communicated. If they're not, then there is no authority, there is no power. And that's what you should expect from whoever stands up here, whoever stands in front of whatever congregation you're a part of in the future, that they would deliver to the best of their ability, with humility before God, the truth that God has entrusted to them. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote this short letter to a, a comrade, a protege named Titus. Titus was a longtime partner of Paul's. He had traveled around the world with Paul. He had, gone, uh, he had faced some really serious challenges together with Paul. They had gone to war together, in a sense. You can read in Galatians and 2 Corinthians about some of the difficult situations that Titus and Paul faced together. Titus, unlike Paul, though, was a Gentile, a non-Jewish man, who had come to believe the gospel through the ministry of Paul. Paul had communicated the truth of God to him, and he had believed it. And that's why in verse 4, Paul calls Titus, my true child in a common faith. When Paul wrote this letter, Titus was on the island of Crete. Uh, Crete. I wish I'd, I should have, I should have um, created a slide with some beautiful pictures of Crete. You can look it up. Maybe I wonder if any of you have ever been to Crete, but it looks like a gorgeous place. As the Cyprus, by the way, we just read, we just prayed for the cowards who were stationed in Cyprus. Um, Crete is another Greek island that's maybe an hour and a half flight from Cyprus. It's a mountainous island uh, just south of the Greek mainland. Picture, you know, those, those crystal clear blue turquoise waters and beautiful mountains and cliffs. Well, Titus is there when he receives this letter. That's a, Paul had, had been there, but was no longer there. Paul is somewhere on the Greek mainland. We don't know exactly where he is when he writes this, but he had previously been in Crete, and when he was in Crete, he left his friend Titus there to, to care for the, the, the network of, of, of churches that were meeting in houses around that island. And he also left Titus there to deal with some serious trouble 
that was happening in those small churches throughout Crete. So that's the who behind this letter. That's the who. Now let's think about what this letter is about. I already told you a little bit about the what behind this letter, but let's look at it a little bit more closely. We find out at the end of this letter, apparently, the, the two other friends of Paul, one by the name of Zemus, which, who, who was a lawyer, and one by the name of Apollos, who was a teacher and preacher, they were traveling through that region. They were going to pass through Crete, and so the Apostle Paul gives them a letter and says, give this to Titus when you, get, when you go through Crete. So in one sense, we could say this, this little letter here, it's only, it's only three chapters, we could say it's, um, it's a personal note. Uh, Paul wanted to say hi to his friend Titus and, and fill him in on some updates, give, fill him in on some logistical plans for the future. It is very much that. But this is also a letter filled with lots of instruction for Titus, for the churches in Crete, and by extension, for ch- churches like ours. Instruction on how to live lives that are driven by and aligned with the truth of the gospel. So, so let's do this. Let's read those opening verses one more time. It says there in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see the first three verses are really just Paul introducing himself to someone he already knows, to Titus. But and, and it's, it's a mouthful for sure. And it's kind of hard to follow. The, the, the grammatical makeup of this, this little section here, that sentence is hard to follow. But really, we can understand it when we just take phrases and look at them one by one. We're not going to go tediously through every phrase and look at each one by one. But I hope to communicate to you what it is that Paul is getting across in this little self-introduction. Again, Paul identifies himself as a, as, a, as a servant of God and a representative, a messenger of Jesus Christ. And as such, what he says, he calls his work this. He says, my work is for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that is God's chosen people, and their knowledge of the truth. In other words, here's how, here's how Paul understands his work. His job as a servant of God is to communicate the truth that God had revealed to him. His goal is to see people know that truth, believe that truth, and live by that truth. And as a result, experience the, quote, hope of eternal life. Hope of eternal life. Paul was in the business of communicating truth, and it almost got him killed a couple of times. It got him arrested and incarcerated. This, and this truth, as I've already alluded to, and we're going to see again in the weeks ahead as we go through the rest of this letter, the truth that Paul is referring to, it centers on God's plan. God's plan to, re, to, to redeem this broken, sin-cursed world and to rescue every single one of us who believes in Jesus, the Son of God, who was crucified, who rose again to atone for sin 
and to guarantee eternal life for everyone who believes in him. Eternal life which begins now and culminates in life in a renewed creation. Where there's no more sickness, sadness, death, or evil. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the truth that Paul believed. Look again at verse 1 with me. Paul says that this truth is a truth which accords with godliness. It accords with godliness. Some translations say it's truth which leads to godliness. The, the verb there, to accord with or to lead to, the, the Greek verb is, is kata, K-A-T-A is how we would transliterate it into English. It means to extend towards. This truth extends towards godliness. It leads in the direction of godliness. You see, believing the gospel puts you on a path to godliness. Knowing that truth is meant to drive you towards godly character, godly living. But what does godliness mean in the first place? What is godliness it's, a, it's an old-fashioned word, some of us might say. It's a, it's a Bible word. It shows up all over the Bible. It shows up in many of the Psalms. It shows up in the rest of the Scriptures, too. But what does it mean to be godly? How would you define it? Does it mean to be, to be religious? A godly woman is a religious woman? Does it mean to be respectable? Does it mean someone who, uh, who keeps their hands clean, doesn't cheat, doesn't sleep around, doesn't look at porn? Someone who keeps their hands clean from sin. Well, yes, in a sense it does mean that. But I'd encourage you to think of godliness not just as keeping your hands clean from sin, but think of godliness as getting your hands dirty in the service of others. Godly has the negative connotation, negative in the sense that it means not doing certain things, but also has a positive connotation of doing certain other things, keeping your hands clean from sin, yes, but also getting your hands dirty in acts of love and justice and mercy and care for others. Godly, literally, well, it's in the word, right? It just means like God. But as you think about what it means to be like God, what do you picture in your mind? What, what does it look like to look like God? As we think about that, I direct you to look at Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh. What does he look like as you see him in the Gospels? Yes, it's true that as you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus did abstain from sin. He abstained from immorality. And in a sense, yes, he kept his hands clean from all that wickedness. But what's most striking about him as you read the Gospels, what's most striking, isn't it? His willingness to get his hands dirty? And serving people? Isn't what, what, what's most captivating and amazing about him is the, the level of compassion, his consistent awareness of others' needs, 
his willingness to meet those needs at, at tremendous cost to himself, even when he's exhausted, he's looking and he's meeting needs. Healing, feeding, the often most ignored people, the discarded people, the weak people, or his willingness to forgive, his willingness to reconcile, his willingness to receive broken people and heal and transform them, his willingness to face trouble and endure betrayal in the name of what is true and what is good. You see, all of that is godliness. So when you think of godly, think Jesus-y. To be godly is to be Jesus-y. I know it's, not, it's probably not going to stick. It's not, it doesn't sound like that great of a term. I like it, though. And what we're going to see as we read through Titus is that everything that Paul calls Christians to in this letter, it aligns with the character and the demeanor of Jesus. Who was not just a religious, respectable man. Who kept himself clean from wickedness. Yes, he did keep himself clean, utterly pure. But he got his hands dirty by touching people that no one else would even dare touch by associating with people that no one else would even give the time of day to. So to be godly is to be Jesus-y, is to be Jesus-like. And belief in the gospel leads us to that kind of character. The gospel is designed to lead us into that kind of life, a life that looks like Jesus' life. Godly does not mean religious. It does not simply mean respectable. In fact, in, in Titus, six times in this letter, Paul refers to good works. Good works, or, or some Bibles will translate it good deeds. It means doing good things. Just works. Righteous works. Works of love. Works of mercy. Belief in the gospel is meant to lead us to care for others, to protect others. Belief in the gospel leads us to leads to lives that are led justly, lives that are marked by mercy in the pursuit of not just my flourishing, but the flourishing of others, even those who are really different from me, even those with whom I disagree very strongly. Nine or so times in this, in this letter, Paul uses the word good, he refers to things that are good, not just good works, good deeds, but other things that are good. He wants us to see that, that knowing and believing the truth of the gospel leads to what God calls good, to a good life, not a comfortable life, not even necessarily what the world might call a successful life, but it leads to the good life. It leads to the good life that's embodied in the character and the life of Jesus. We've recently been returning to the basics as a church. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we, um, we studied the Apostles' Creed together, which is that ancient summary of Christian uh, teaching. We studied the Lord's Prayer together, 
And God willing, in the new year, we're going to study um, the Ten Commandments together. And the reason we're doing that is because each of these three, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments, have been used by the church, universal, the, the, the global church, for centuries now. They've been used to teach basic Christian doctrine, basic Christian beliefs. It's one of the ways that the church has catechized or has basically um, equipped new Christians and old Christians with the foundational knowledge of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments have always been a part of that. And so we're going back to those basics. We don't want to assume that we know them. We're going back to And the part of the reason we're doing that is because what we believe matters deeply. Knowing the truth as it's contained in the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments and and in Titus, knowing that truth is vital for us. But Titus is here to remind us that knowing the truth is not an end in and of itself. Even believing the truth is not an end in and of itself. Look at what James says in James 2, a book that we studied maybe two, three years ago. I'm not sure how long ago it was. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. One of the more jolting verses in the Bible I've always found. I, I, I sense even a little bit of sarcasm in there. When, when I stand before someone else and say, look, I, I've memorized the Apostles' Creed. I pray the Lord's Prayer. My doctrine, my theology is in line with the Bibles. I believe the right things. It's like James is coming to me and saying, what, would, you, would you like a cookie for that? Would you like a medal for that? You believe that there's one God? Good. You know the demons believe that too? And they're scared of him. They run from him. They're not in relationship with him. Knowing that there is one God and loving and being in relationship with that one God are two different things. To be in relationship with that God and to love that God means that there's a life that's been transformed into the image of that God. There's a life that looks increasingly Jesus-y if you're in relationship with Jesus. In verse 26 of James 2, he goes on to say, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works or faith without deeds is dead. In other words, he's saying, if you really believe the gospel, then that's going to work itself out into practical living. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't lead to living like and looking like and doing the things that Jesus did, then that faith is kind of useless. It's dead. What's the point of it? If it doesn't lead to godliness, what's the point? Is it even real faith? Now, a relationship between believing and how we live is a it's a controversial one. It's a difficult one. And I would invite you to go back and listen to that series in James if that's something you'd like to investigate more. But for now, I'll simply say this before we move on. I think it's important. We need to get this straight before, before we move on. Um, it is receiving the gospel that leads to godliness. It's not the other way around. Okay? The gospel, the news of the gospel is not be godly and God will have mercy on you. No, it's, the, it's quite the opposite. It's because God has had mercy on you. Be godly. Be like Jesus who saved you. 
Later on in in chapter 2 of Titus, Paul is going to write these words in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God being the, the undeserved, unearned, free love and kindness and favor of God. It has appeared. And it saves all people, all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. But that grace that saves also does this. It's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, it's receiving that unearned. We don't work for it. I'm not godly in order to get something from God. If that were the case, I'd be, I'd, I'm, I'd be screwed, frankly, because I can never be godly enough. I'm not even close. But because I've received, because you have received the unearned, <laughs> scandalously generous mercy and kindness and favor of God, because he loves you, he's now training you by his grace to renounce ungodliness, teaching you the way a parent teaches a child, patiently, repeatedly, Grace trains us in that sort of way to put away worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly, Jesus-y lives in the present age. As we wait, verse 13, for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's coming back, new hope, who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. You see the generosity in there. You see the grace in there. He gave himself for us before there was anything godly about us. Before there was anything good in you, he gave himself for you to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, look, zealous for good works, who are crazy about doing good Jesus-y things. Let's, in the third place, as we end, let's look at the why of this letter. Why was this letter written? And what I mean, we've already talked about the purpose of the letter, but I mean, why was it written specifically to Titus and particularly those people in Crete? You may have noticed in the passage that we just looked at in chapter 2, verse 11, that Paul contrasts godliness on the one hand with worldliness on the other. Worldliness, that's another old Bible word, right? What does worldliness mean? Well, if godly equals like God, like Jesus, then worldliness is the opposite. You might say that if godly means like Jesus, then worldly means like everyone else. And what was happening in Crete here? And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, because what was happening in Crete is that people who claimed to believe the gospel were living like everyone else. Remember, this was an island, right? And, and as an ancient island, it had a certain culture or cultures with certain values. There, there were commonly held practices on Crete. There were deeply rooted beliefs 
about what mattered and, and what was important and what was true on Crete. Not unlike Westchester or the tri-state area, we've got some deeply held beliefs in our culture, don't we, about what matters, about what we should care about and work for. We have certain cultures in place here that are, that are strong, that exert influence. The Cretan way of life on Crete, and here was the problem, that Cretan way of life was shaping the lives of some followers of Jesus more than the gospel was. You get that, right? Can you, can you relate to that? Can you relate to that? That the way of life in which we find ourselves situated in this context where God's put us, whether it's suburban Westchester, wherever it is you live, can you relate to the idea that, that, that where you live and that, and that culture around you is exerting more influence in your life than the gospel is? That's what was happening for the people of these Christians in Crete. Some of them were prioritizing what the culture told them mattered. They were pursuing what, what Crete told them was valuable. They, they were viewing themselves and they were viewing others in the ways that their culture had, had implicitly instructed them to. Again, can you relate to that? I, I find that so uncomfortably and yet undeniably relatable. Before the gospel came to Crete, people there already had a belief system. Um, many of the folks on Crete believed in gods, plural, little g gods, right? The Greek gods, the gods that you studied, maybe in social studies, like Zeus. In fact, Cretans believed, they claimed that Zeus had been born on their island. They had a special place in their heart for that little g god. And unlike the god who never lies, <laughs> Zeus was known to be a liar. He was known to be a cheat. He was known to be a womanizer. Cretan culture was notorious for being like Zeus in some ways. You become like what you worship. And in this case, they became a lot like Zeus. In fact, do you know that one Greek word, ancient Greek word for liar, was kretizo. To be Cretan was a euphemism for being a liar. The cities there were unsafe. Now, it was a beautiful place and a dangerous place. Again, I'm not saying that everything about Crete was bad, but what happened was that the Christians who were living there were failing to discern between what was good and what was bad in the culture. And rather than celebrating what was good, rejecting what was bad, and seeking to influence it for good, they had simply assimilated all of it or were in the process of doing that. They were becoming more Zeusy than Jesusy. And so through the influence of corrupt teachers and the influence of the society in which they lived, many followers of Jesus were drifting away from godliness. And, and they were drifting towards that, that particularly Cretan version of worldliness. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes this letter to them. And perhaps we can see why this is so relevant for us. Because aren't there particular versions of worldliness that we live around over the next few weeks, as we read through Titus, Titus is going to lead us to ask, am I being shaped more by my culture or by the gospel? Has the gospel led me towards living like Jesus? 
Or is the primary influence in my life something else that's actually leading me to be more and more a child of suburban Westchester or wherever it is that you live? So so that my goals, my values, what I work for, how I view myself, how I view others, what I consider to be the good life that I'm after, it all seems to be reflecting more of where I live than what I claim to believe. So that I'm driven by goals like saving and spending and succeeding and achieving and one day retiring. And that's about it. The gospel is designed to impact us and to impact others through us. Implicitly, I think Titus, as we read this this letter, we're going to be asked, "Do, do you want that? Do you want the gospel to impact you and to impact others through you? Do we want to be a church that, that, that has an impact, that, that is known not just for believing the right things, not just a church that's known for having sound doctrine, or do we want to be a, a people who are impacting others as a result of sound doctrine? What we believe matters deeply, but, but you know this as well as I do. You can recite the Apostles' Creed and still live almost exactly like someone who rejects it. So are we willing to evaluate our own faith? Are we willing to ask ourselves, how has the gospel impacted me and impacted others through me? And then humbly ask the Lord to realign us where we've drifted. This is what I believe the Lord has for us over the next several weeks as we go through the letter of Titus. And if you're still not sure whether you can believe what the Bible tells you to be true, I, again, I just want to reiterate my, my encouragement, my invitation to you to, to, to maintain an open mind as you hear from the Bible over the next several weeks and compare what, what, what the world tells you is true to what the Bible is telling you is true and discern for yourself which one really leads to the good life. Is what the world is telling you really leading to good to peace, to joy, to satisfaction. And I encourage you as you hear from the letter to Titus over the next several weeks to evaluate whether the news of the gospel really is good news after all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace, a grace that rescues and a grace that trains and renews and redirects and realigns us Oh, how we need this again and again, not just once. Ah, the wisdom of giving us a letter like Titus that we don't just read once and apply and put away. No, we, we keep coming back to this throughout our lives. Make us more like Jesus. Make the faith that you've given us a transformative faith. And Lord, where there is no faith in anyone here in this, in this congregation, if anyone lacks belief in you, what they lack, would you please give it to them? In Jesus' name, amen.